0: Juliet Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 205 of Dogcast Radio, which is an in-depth conversation with Dawn and Tony Mitchell focusing on empowerment training for power dogs. You can find all our episodes at DogcastRadio.com, and coming up later in the episode, we've got the Dogcast Radio news.
1: Although sweet by nature, Sugar weighs double her ideal size, tipping the scales at 26 pounds, that's 11.9 kilograms, the same as a two-year-old child.
0: But before that, are you struggling with a strong dog, such as a Cane Corso, a Staffordshire Bull Terrier, a Bulldog, a Boxer, Great Dane, Dalmatian, Mastiff, Pitbull Terrier? Well, here's what you need to know. I'm talking today to Dawn Antoniak-Mitchell. Hi, Dawn. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Good, good. Now we're going to talk about your book, your latest book. And I will put links onto the other books so that people can, if they haven't caught up with you already, they can catch up with you. But the latest book, Empowerment Training for Your Power Dog. Now this is this is fascinating because I've had a, a Labrador who wasn't wasn't quite a power dog, but you know was was big enough that I had to sort of make him do things or ask him to do things rather than just pick him up. We've also had two smaller dogs and we, particularly with our first small dog, a Bichon star, we kind of fell into that small dog syndrome without realising what we were doing because you say, come here or get off that or whatever. And if the small dog doesn't do it, you You automatically go, well, I'll just pick you up then and make you do it and now with with mischief now who's who's even smaller than um star the Bishop she's a, a German spitz klein like a little Pomeranian similar to a pomeranian we've done a better job with her, I think because we've deliberately worked hard at not not just scooping her up you know so it's um mm-hmm. you know we, we've tried hard, but the breeds we're talking about today they they you know they're the large powerful breeds that you can't scoop up and and, and make do things. So it's obviously a much needed book. What was the inspiration behind writing the book?
2: Well, it was a combination of a lot of different experiences I've had as a dog trainer. You know, we've had thousands of dogs come through our doors at Bonafide over the years uh, for training, different activities, basic obedience, puppy classes, up to some of the dog sports. And a lot of these dogs were coming in, frankly, completely out of control in large part because most of the power breeds that I talk about in my book are, you know, physically large. Like you said, you can't just pick up a 180 pound Great Dane if that dog decides, I'm not going to walk with you today. Yes. You also can't, you know, necessarily stop that 200 pound Mastiff if they say, I'm going to pull over to introduce myself to this person over here. You know, you're going along for the ride whether you want to or not. <laughs> yeah. So, and and we noticed that a lot of these dogs actually were quite stressed because mm. they it wasn't clear to them what their owner's expectations were in part because it's so difficult to deal with the physical aspects of most of these, you know, most of these breeds. And then we also noticed, you know, the other end of the leash, the owners themselves would often come in and we usually had them one of two groups. They would fall into one of two categories either the owners who had these big, massive, beautiful, muscular dogs and could not for the life of them understand why anyone else would be even remotely uncomfortable around these out-of-control dogs.
1: Mm. Um,
2: or we had the people that would come in and they bought their Great Dane puppy who <laughs> was probably, I don't know, maybe 30 pounds when they brought it home at eight weeks. Um, you know, a good-sized puppy and they were shocked and amazed at the size that this dog achieved, you know, by adolescence. Yeah. And they were just almost afraid of their dog because they can't do anything with their dog that their dog really doesn't want to do with them. So really, we saw a lot of things on both sides of the leash, um, both ends of the leash that we felt needed to be addressed. And then also where we live in Omaha, Nebraska, we have breed specific ordinances for a lot of your larger breeds, you know, Cane Corsos, uh, American Staffordshire Terriers. Now, granted those aren't big dogs, but they're very powerful for their size.
0: Yes. Yeah.
2: Um, And, and so we had a local need as well to, you know, to help owners, understand what their training obligations were to do the training with their dogs, um, so that they didn't manage to get in a situation where they would have to forfeit their dog to do authorities Yeah. So it was kind of a number of things that came together. And then we've had some of the instructors here have owned, you know, bulldogs, boxers, some of the bigger breeds. I myself own Dalmatians, which I consider to be a power dog as well. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, we had some personal uh reasons and experiences that we just felt like this was this was a book that needed needed to be written
0: yeah yeah and and like you say with with a big dog that is quite you know quite capable of going well I'm going to pull you over here and I don't care you know you really do need to get your training right you need to have the right relationship with him and and you need to have that really well in place with the dog, with yourself. You both need to be working together or you really are going to get in a mess, aren't you?
2: Yes. And unfortunately, you know, it's a mess that, again, a lot of other breed owners, you don't have to maybe be quite as concerned about. you know, Because one of the things, this book, when I talk about power dogs, for the most part, they are very large. But I had a few... um characteristics that I used to kind of define who, you know, which breeds this dog or this book was written for. And I'm including, you know, dogs that have extreme power due to either physical strength or just simply their massive size, you know, so a, a mastiff, a bull mastiff, they're huge strong dogs, but they're mostly huge. Um, whereas something like an Amstaff or, you know, an American Pitbull Terrier, they're extremely powerful, not so much because of their size, but just because of their bulk, they're too deep, if mm. you will. Yeah. Um, but I also am including, you know, dogs that have a an ancestry rooted in hunting big game of fighting other animals or guarding people or property against other people which is different than, like, some of our herding livestock guardian breeds. They were, de- they were developed more to protect against predators, you know, protect the flock against the wolves, whereas the power dogs that I've included, you know, they're designed to guard more against people,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which brings in its own set of potential instincts. Um, and most of these breeds are exceptionally devoted to their family, Which, the flip side of that coin, oftentimes means that they can be really wary and even outright aggressive towards strangers if you don't address these instincts early and appropriately. Yeah. Um, Most of them have extreme tenacity, high pain tolerance, very smart, very Mm -hmm. smart, and independent working, and a lot of them also are aggressive toward other dogs and animals, but it's not a fear-type aggression. Mm. You know, this is innate, you know, because some of these breeds were developed for the baiting rings. You know, they were developed to to go in and bait the bulls and the bears and fight other dogs in really wacky times. Yes. There were even occasions where they would fight these dogs against humans. Mm. So, you know, there's a whole set of characteristics that go into these, you know, these power dogs besides just the size but it all kind of comes into, you know, into one package, so to speak. And it, it's really important that owners get a handle on that and learn how to build that bond with their dog early, yes. you yeah. know, and, and train in a way that complements the instincts or counteracts the instincts appropriately so you're not digging the hole deeper. Yes. <laughs> you know, you're, <laughs> you're actually um, helping the dog control those instincts or direct those instincts in a way that's appropriate for modern life. Yeah. Because most of these are also very relatively old breeds at a time when there was just, it was just different and there were different needs
0: from from certain dogs. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's, I mean, having any dog <laughs> these days can be quite difficult because we expect, I always think we yeah. expect, we expect so much of them and, you know, we sort of yeah. want them to be um fun and, and you know, lively when we want to be with them. We want them to switch off when we're at work or busy. We want them to mix with other people, other dogs, you know, just to know what the rules of life are. And, you know, it some of it goes against their instincts. And we don't always yeah. give them the understanding they need. And we don't look at it from their point of view and go, well, of course, that's going to upset them, you know if you look at it from a dog's mm-hmm. point of view. so it, it, But we, we owe that to them. So what are, sort of are the, the really important things that we need to know if we're going to live in harmony, hopefully, with a powerful dog? What what are sort of the really important things we need to know about it, Dawn?
2: I think probably the most important um, thing to keep in mind is these are breeds because of their instincts and their physical attributes you have to train early, train often, Yes. <laughs> and yeah. then train some more. <laughs> um, because, like you like you mentioned, it's a bichon to pick up. You know, one of those guys that they say, "Yeah, I'm just not feeling the love today. I'm not going to listen to you." You know, that's that's an easy option for us as owners. Whereas these dogs. You know, the power dogs, you're not going to be able to physically control them. Even the small ones, for example, the Boston Terrier, Mm -hmm. which actually fits a lot of criteria. They used to be bigger than they are today, but they were used as fighting dogs and they are very powerful for their size. Even trying to get your arms around a Boston that's decided, no, I think I need to go tell that other dog off. That can be more of a handful because of their power than picking up a, a chihuahua. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, yes. it's just totally different. And if you don't build that bond with your puppy um, very early on, it can be very difficult, As particularly about the time you're adolescence, and they start to go, wow, what's my real purpose in life? You know, those instincts start to kick in. So, for example, we have a a client now with a boxer, an adolescent boxer, used to love everybody, Mm. kid about eight months and going, you know, maybe I really don't like other dogs so much and maybe I need to guard my people a little bit more. Mm. Um, If you don't have a good relationship prior to that, it becomes more difficult to address these natural ebbs and flows in behavior. So, you know, you need to be able to get in there and then you need to be using techniques that aren't going to make the situation worse. Mm -hmm. You don't want to physically, you don't want to, even if you could, and some of the really big dogs, I would argue you really can't physically correct them in any meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, physically correcting a dog that's trying to guard you, you know, Um, It may not be appropriate that he's doing that guarding behavior. But, you know, if you choose to yank on the chain and yell at them for doing what instinct is telling them to do, you're going to make the problem worse, Mm. not better. Yeah. Um, You know, trying to physically force uh, a dog to lie down, you know, take your take a kind of Corso and go, no, you're going to lie down and try to physically manipulate them and force them into a down, that's not going to work. That's going to become a confrontation. And it's a confrontation then that the dog goes, wow, I didn't want to do that. And my person couldn't make me do it. Uh, huh? How far can I take this? You know, you don't want to set up those kinds of relationships. Plus it is stressful for the dog and it's stressful for the owner. The quality of life is, is greatly damaged. So you need to get in there early. You need to get in there and work with them in positive ways because these dogs are all extremely smart. You know, their physical agility, their ability, I wouldn't expect, you know, a mastiff to necessarily go from a down and pop up into a sit as fast as perhaps a boxer can. You know, they're very different physical builds, but still, they both can do the same skill with as much reliability and as much joy and as much you know, stability as, as any other breed of dog. So you get in there, you use methods that make sense to the dog that encourage the dog to work with you to build that trust. And then when you say, no dog, you don't need to guard me. I've got this or, Hey, let's ignore that dog. That's barking at you over there and continue our walk together. The dog is going to do that because you have that mental connection. You don't have to rely on the physical. Yeah, Yeah. So, you know, that training is very critical. And another aspect that in my experience a lot of owners don't appreciate is the need to understand other people's views of certain power breeds. Mm. Um, you know, and of course the breed that springs to mind, um, the American Pitbull Terrier. Mm -hmm. or the mixes breeds that appear to be like that. And I'll just use the term pit bull. That's not, you know, a breed, but kind of a group. And I think most people kind of have that mental image of of what a pit bull is. But those powerful breeds often with a fighting heritage, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times people that, you know, an owner may be walking there, lovely, lovely, well-behaved. Uh, pity down the street and the dog is just a joy to live with and is really a wonderful dog truly is and may elicit very negative responses yeah. from yeah. people you know because of media coverage of you know a horrific event which mm. as much as we want to wish or deny these things have happened Mm. And they're often, you know, labels of pit bull and that type of thing are often hung on dogs, mm. right or wrong. You know, that's a different discussion. But <laughs> yeah. you know, people their their um, concept of this type of dog, unless they've lived with one or actually known one, it's formed by the media. Yeah. And most people are going to have a very negative view of of these power breeds. Um, and then when you add in the breeds that are often under either outright breed bans or breed restrictions. Um, Like I said, here in Omaha, we have certain ordinances where there are particular breeds that must be muzzled all the time in public and double leashed. And it doesn't, there's a testing procedure that owners can go through, but it's so onerous Mm -hmm. that the average, even the average responsible, well-intending owner, it's difficult for them to get through these hoops. Um, so these dogs are required to be muzzled and there was a study then in France and I, I referenced it in my book where they did a study. They took the same dog out, walked them out, you know, with a muzzle on, let strangers, you know, rate their opinion of how safe this dog was. And then the same dog later comes by without a muzzle and invariably it's the same dog behaving mm-hmm. in the same way, but people's perceptions when they see that muzzle is that's a dangerous dog. Mm. So their perceptions change. So when you own one of these breeds, you go to the dog part, you kind of see the warmest part because you've either got the people that get it and they'll let their dogs play with your dog or the vast majority will go, oh my God, here comes this terrible dog and it's going to eat up my dog and, you know, run away (laughs) kind of response to it. Mm -hmm. But you have to, you have to be prepared for that. And you have to understand that, you know, again, there's a mental phenomenon that, that is well-documented that I've talked about. It's called the backfire effect. Sometimes the harder you try to convince somebody that a core belief is wrong, the tighter they'll, they'll hold on to it. So if you get into a confrontation, a conversation with someone who just hates, just hates anything that remotely looks like the dog that you have, your chances of ever convincing them if they don't want to be convinced are, are, are very slim. Mm -hmm. um so can you walk away from that can you handle that kind of societal pressure in a way that doesn't rob you of the joy of owning you know a power breed um and in most owners most first-time power dog owners they i don't think most of them really appreciate that um Mm -hmm. and we've even seen that in our own our own group training classes we Mm -hmm. don't we don't, um, our general classes aren't divided by breed or size or anything like that. And, you know, we've noticed a lot of times you'll get the person with the, the smaller dog, you know, and here comes a, a big, strong dog into the room. And, and, you know, that smaller dog person, just sitting totally far away. there's no need to. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of room for everybody. There's no danger. There's no anything. But it's that major perception and response. Yes. And then... Yeah that puts the the power dog owner on the defensive and people really need to get their head around that and and make peace with that. And then they can enjoy their dog. And then if they do the training, they can take their dog out. They can be that ambassador. And instead of getting in shouting matches with people, they can let their dog's behavior speak to the character of most of these, the vast majority of these power dogs,
0: which is excellent. Yeah. Yeah. As you say, I, I always think every time we step out whatever breed we've got, we should aim to be the best ambassador we can for dog ownership, you know, I really believe that, yeah,
2: yeah, always make the other person wish they had your dog,
0: yes, yeah, you know
2: that kind that kind of a goal because that that does speak speak volumes you know mm. for the breed and and the flip side is when you when your dog is absolutely out of control, you can you can damage you know people's opinions about a breed that that you really love yes just because your dog isn't very well trained yes
0: <laughs> yeah yeah thinking about what you say about you know the stereotypes we have and i always thought with with um buddy obviously being a labrador um people just would go oh it's a labrador and they a number of times just a hand shut out and stroked him Without warning, mm-hmm. without "Can I touch your dog?" and just because you know, it, oh, he's a Labrador; he's safe. And, he, and I used to think, you know, you really shouldn't do that because you know, okay, Buddy was sort of, you know, I would have, I'd have abs- you know, have backed every every penny I'd got that he was absolutely sound. I never put him in a position where you know that was put to the test. You know, if I could avoid it, was, you know what I mean. But mm-hmm. if, if somebody dashed their hand out at him, I couldn't really uh, do anything, and I wouldn't have wanted to because that might have started to put him on his guard. But you know, what I'm trying to say is that we, we shouldn't have these stereotypes because no dog, you shouldn't look at any dog and go, that's all right. That'll be fine with me and my children because it's, uh, and equally you shouldn't look at them and go, Oh, that's a dangerous dog. It's a, you know, we, it's an individual case by case, um, assessment, isn't it? Surely we should look at them and think, well, what's the body language going on? And I, you know, obviously and say to the owner, can I say hello? You know, surely that should be the, the, the approach, shouldn't it?
2: <laughs> that would be common sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and sometimes people, you know, the presence of a dog seems to make a lot of otherwise very intelligent people lose all sorts of common sense. Yes. Um, and you're absolutely right because they are all dogs. Mm. They are all a different species from us. There's really... Not a lot natural about the way we live with our dogs. If you really, really think about it, mm-hmm. we've taken this other species, forced it into our human world, and we put these expectations and we project things onto, you know, the dogs, and it, it it sets up a recipe because it, you know, we give off all of these signals to the dog if we're uptight, going, oh wow, that's a cujo dog, <laughs> you know, oh my yeah. god, I got to cover my neck. Well, you just by your body language and, you know, your adrenaline and everything that the dog can smell on you, you've just increased the odds that the dog is going to do something that you're going to at least interpret as being dangerous. Oh, my God, that dog stepped at me or that dog stopped and looked at me. Yeah. Well, never mind that I'm acting like an idiot, (laughs) you know, and I'm I'm sweating like crazy and, you know, they can smell the fear a mile away. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I can't do that. It's gotta be that it's this particular breed or like you said, Oh it's a lab, it's a golden, I can just smoosh with its face and get right down in there and kiss it on the lips. Mm-hmm. And the dog's gonna be totally okay with it. But they're all dogs and and I think we sell dogs short when we, you know, project onto them human characteristics. Mm. because at least for me, I want to own a dog because they're a dog yes. <laughs> you know, I, and sometimes I just need to get away from people yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I want my dogs because they're dogs, and because it yeah. is another species working with me, I don't want to try to make them um, into little furry humans mm-hmm. and, and that can get people into trouble, and again, especially if you've got these power dogs um, and also when you rescue them Because, unfortunately, at least here in the U.S., you know, most of our shelters have a pretty significant population of what are loosely classified as the pit bull breeds. Mm. You know, mixed breeds in the bigger urban areas where dog fighting is a, you know, real big issue still. um, You know, you do get dogs with fighting histories that end up in the shelters. And these dogs are wonderful with people. Mm Mm-hmm but not necessarily with other dogs. Mm -hmm. And they were bred to be, you know, good with their owners, because if you go back to the fighting history, it didn't do a a fight man, a pit man, any good to have the best fighting dog in the world if he couldn't take it out of the pit and take it home at night. Mm -hmm. You know, if he's making his bread and butter on it. So they needed to be good with people and highly aggressive with dogs. And what we see a lot of times is, People will get dogs from shelters, and a lot of them are particularly attracted to, you know, the the really needy cases, the bait dogs, you know, the ones that were used for practice, or you know, dogs that were taken in in fighting raids, and they're attracted and they want to save that dog, and that dog is good with them, maybe, um, but then all of a sudden they find out that that trust and that good behavior doesn't apply to other dogs, or doesn't apply to every other person Mm -hmm. and interestingly a lot of the dog attack um information when it's a dog freshly adopted it's because the dog i mean the dog is traumatized beyond belief i can't imagine what it would be like um being thrown in basically a doggy jail away from everything you ever knew Mm -hmm. and then some stranger comes and takes you and you know the dog usually was really good with that person and then that person assumed, therefore, the dog would be good with everyone else, mm. and the dog is left with a child or yeah. you know a vulnerable yeah. adult, and all of a sudden something goes wrong. That person gets injured or killed, mm. and then the label is hung on the dog. Yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah, we we need to appreciate them as dogs, and regardless of the breed. Yes. You know, it's not just for these powerful dogs and, and it would make for a lot less unfortunate situations, I think. And much happier dogs and much happier dog owners too yeah. in a lot of cases.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think one of the problems that we, we suffer from as as a species is, you know, I like the look of this breed. I know nothing about or not very much about what it actually does, how its brain works, but I like the look of it, you know? And, and so we go and get one of those and then we go, oh my goodness, it doesn't behave like (laughs) I think it was going, you know? It doesn't behave like it looks. And and I think a prime one for me of this is, um, the, uh, is a smooth, I, I love, um, miniature smooth-coated Dachshunds and I love them and and they look you know Mm -hmm. to me as if as if they'd be really really cuddly and woodly and they would sit on my lap all day and just want to sort of you know play like that and you think they're not like that that that's not what's going on in that brain in that dog's brain brain and I know (laughs) that yeah and I don't think we'd actually be a good a good match but you know I love the look of them but I've You know, when I know what, from what I know about them, I mean, they're a beautiful breed. I'm not saying they're not a beautiful breed, but I don't think it would be a great match for me. And I think that's the key, not just the look of them, but what's going on in that dog's brain.
2: Yes. What was the breed originally developed for? Yeah. It's not, you know, a dog's behavior isn't 100% nature. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not all about genetics, but it's also not. All about how you raise them. Mm. So, for example, I have right now I have a a Jack Russell Terrier that is over seventeen years old, and mm. she still thinks she rules the roost. <laughs> um, and I have a thirteen-year-old Jack Russell Terrier male, and then I've got a nine-year-old Dalmatian and a one-year-old Border Collie. Mm-hmm. I raise them all the same. <laughs> They've gone to the same training classes, you know, my same training philosophies and, and basic training approaches and socialization and all of that are all the same. And, mm. You know, They're all raised in the same house, same family. But first of all, they are different individuals. Of course, my two Jack Russells are not little, you know, duplicates of each other because they are individuals. They're also different, you know, male and female. Yeah. But... You know, looking at the difference in the behavior between the Jack Russell, the Dalmatian, and the Border Collie, you can get three different sets of instincts, which then comes out as different sets of behaviors mm. that we need to address. So it's not all that it's not all nurture because I nurtured them all the same. Yes, yeah. um, You know, there's aspects of instinct of you know breed history, if you will that express themselves even today, even though none of my dogs have to go day after day and do what their ancestors did, Mm -hmm. you know, and if those instincts didn't still exist, we wouldn't have these unique breeds. We'd have one kind of, you know, general (laughs) mixed breed kind of dog available to us. Well, we don't. And, you know, understanding that that's part of the package that a pit bull and a bunny rabbit you know, American Pitbull Terrier and a bunny rabbit may not be the best mix. They may, but mm. more times than not, they're probably not going to be the best mix. A large breed, a a so brasiliero. Brisil- I always have problems saying that breed. <laughs> mm. That would not be a good breed for most people to have if you've got a house full of children coming and going and your children's friends coming and going. Because they are very, very wary of strangers. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there's only so much you can do to counteract or control those instincts. And you can't do anything about the instincts if you don't understand that they're there. Yeah.
0: And appreciate
2: that they're there. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Saying that about sort of when you try and shape the dog's behavior what kind of motivation are we looking at for these breeds? You know, what's when I'm, I'm thinking are they food motivated or toy motivated, What's what kind of is the motivation?
2: Well, I mean, every dog is an individual mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you will find some dogs that will turn up their nose at raw filet mignon. <laughs> <laughs> not to eat that. Uh, but they turn themselves inside out for a ball. Mm. Um, you know, game of fetch or that type of thing. Um But Overall, in my experience with the power breeds, food tends to be a high motivator for most of them, mm. but even more so, it's that human interaction because these breeds tend to bond very, very tightly with their family, mm. Mm. Um, which is part of what can get them in trouble sometimes. Yes. you know yeah. They have a hard time understanding that it's okay for someone else to come into the you know, family unit to visit or deliver a package or something. Um, but a lot of them, once they learn, once they understand the physical behavior that you're asking of them, they're more than happy to work for that. Oh, good puppy, you know, go! Yeah, yeah. and, you know, the petting, the contact, the, you know, the, the attention that that behavior earns them from their people. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're very, very people. Yes. Um, people motivated Mm -hmm. and, and that can be very powerful. So for example, in the training, some of the training exercise, well, all the training exercises that I have, you know, I recommend if you can start out with a little bit of food to actually show the dog what the behavior is. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing magical about the word sit. That means nothing to a dog. They have no frame of reference. They just know that that sound they eventually get with putting their bum on the ground. Um, you know, so we could tell them to lie down but teach them to physically assume a fit and, yeah. Yeah. you know, same effect. But, you know, we use food because food, we can get in there very quickly. We can reward it. The dog will generally stay a little more calm delivering food than they will with a, you know, oh, what a good boy kind of praise. Uh, but once the dog starts to show an understanding, we move away from the food and we start to replace it with other things the dog wants or needs. And most of the time, that's just a, you know, job well done, dog. Good job. Mm -hmm. What an awesome pupper. Or, okay, you, I told you to sit, you sat, good boy, I'm going to release you and now you can come up here on the couch and sit with me. Mm -hmm. If there's any room left on the couch (laughs) for me after, you know, you get up here. Um, But, you know, we want to transition away because really that's what the relationship is about. The dog wants to work with you, to please you, to earn that attention, you know. And you ask the dog to do things, you get that pleasure out of the dog doing that as well. Yeah. So, but some dogs are different. Some dogs, they require a, a something different to motivate them and motivation also can change depending on how difficult the behavior is mm. so behaviors that are real instinct based so for example you know the breeds that tend to be guard dogs dalmatians for example um you know they were bred to accompany you know carriages actually genetically it's just come out that they are they finally definitively nailed down the the pointer uh, family as the origins of the breed, but the breed was developed and bred over the years to go along with the coaches and then protect the horses and the carriages and stuff Mm. at the way stations at night, going into the fire stations when they were horse drawn and that type of thing. Well, they were bred to guard against people. It was mostly people that were the threat, people Mm. coming to steal the horses or whatever. So, they are natural guardians. Yeah. And if I'm teaching my Dalmatian, it's okay. You can sit and be calmly here when this person is approaching us that you don't know. I may need a higher level of motivation for that behavior mm-hmm. to maintain it because it's a instinctive that I do the motivation, you know, a motivator to get my dog to consistently and reliably sit when I tell her to do that. Yeah. That's not near as big a deal, you know. There's no instinct trying to override that behavior. So motivation, what you use, can vary not only with the individual but also with the behavior you're asking the individual dog for.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: So it's really, and, it's, and that's part of the fun. It's getting to know your dog. What is your, what really means something to your dog? What is your dog willing to work with you for you, in order to? to obtain and and when you you go through that process you really get to know the dog and
0: it helps your training as a result yeah yeah i love that idea that um you know somebody somebody expressed it to me as when you when you ask your dog you know if if the dog likes other dogs when you call them away from from another dog Um, He said, it's like calling them away from a bank holiday Monday. You know, he's going to have a lovely time over there. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to to pay him bank holiday rates. You know, you've got to pay him more with the reward. (laughs) Exactly. And sometimes the best reward you
2: can pay is to let them go back if it's safe. Yes. Yeah. You know, you come when I call you, Will you leave your buddies and come over here. What an awesome dog. I love you. Okay. You did that. I'm gonna let you go back and have some more fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You
2: know, so so thinking in in those terms too, the absolutely you the payout has to be, you know, commensurate with the with the amount of effort that the dog is putting into the behavior and and how much he's fighting what his his ancestors are telling him to do in order to be able to do what you're asking him to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think if you understand that and you can understand what it is, you know, how big an ask is it that you are issuing to the dog? You know, yeah. that, that goes yeah. a, a long yeah. way, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you, yeah. you saying, Absolutely. yeah, you saying about how, how much, how closely these power dogs bond with their owners, how much they love their owners. I'm going to interpret it as loved quite a long time ago. Um, we were sitting outside a cafe and in, in a, in a, a park. And the, this family walked up and sat down with two Rottweilers and there was um the mum and dad and a grown-up son. And they all sat down at the table and then the mum and dad went into the cafe to... By the drinks and the eats and leaving the grown-up son and these rottweilers too rottweilers and bless these dogs i mean they were great but you know they're a big chunky dog they're a rottweiler and you as you say they're a powerful dog Mm -hmm. bless them they sat with their eyes glued on the door of the cafe just whining and whining for you know mum and dad to come back and you know i think that's as you say with a lot of the breeds you know sometimes that's where the the instinct to guard comes from because I love these people and they mean a lot to me you know and I'm gonna look after them you know and again if you can understand that and get that socialization right and get that bond right and you know you know convey it's okay you don't need to guard me in that way you can love me but you don't need to guard me and if you get that right they are beautiful dogs aren't they oh absolutely yeah and when you have that trust so you can tell them,
2: okay, I've got this, and that, that's what I tell Ember, my Dalmatian, if she's starting to get all huffy puffy about something, you know. And I assess it because I I don't expect my dogs to always conform to my human world. They're going to react, yes, you know. And sometimes the things that I haven't even seen yet. And we do a lot of hiking in the mountains and stuff. I don't. I want my dogs to respond. They see a bear. I want them to, you know, stop and think about that for a second and, you know, maybe bluff the bear away or whatever, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but I also want them to trust me enough. So if after that initial assessment, if I'm saying it's okay, trust me back off, I've got this, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and to defer to me, Um, you know, and, and that, that is a big trust and respect issue. It's not something that you can, actively train again the same way you can train a dog to sit or lie down Mm. um it comes from that trust yeah there's some training you can do with it but it may mostly that's a trust issue that the dog is going okay
1: my my
2: you know ultimate leader i'm gonna back off yeah because she's gonna take care of me and she's never steered me wrong yet yeah and i trust that she's she's gonna do it you know for me now too but it can it can be a difficult thing and and it kind of I find it a little humorous although I guess more ironic might be the the way to put it that some of the dogs that suffer the most from separation anxiety are these big powerful breeds yes. yeah um you know that that some people will run in fear you know at the mere sight of them and yet these dogs are kind of the biggest babies when it comes to being separated from their people. Yeah. And so you don't know, have to keep that in line with the socialization. You know, you don't want them to overbond, if you will, to the point where it's stressful for them to be left alone. Mm. You know, they do not have to like it and they, they probably will never like it, but they need to have the confidence again to trust. Mm. If you say, I'll be right back, that you are going to come back. And it's okay, and they can relax. Because even if you don't normally leave your dog alone, you may have to take them to the veterinarian. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe they have to stay overnight. You know, it could be something like that. Or or you just, some folks that we deal with, um, you know, they they were cases of they just needed to be able to go go get some groceries. Yes. You know, and leave their dog at home. And if you've got a great, big, powerful dog with separation anxiety you're probably going to have a dog that's going to bust out of any crate you keep them in and can do a lot of physical damage to themselves and your home, <laughs> you know, in the half hour, it takes you to run to the store to buy, you know, groceries. Yes. Um, so, you know, that, that sensitivity and that, that extreme bonding, um, really is something you gotta get on. And, and if you get an older dog, you know, adopt a rescue dog, you've got to expect that there may be some trauma. They're separated, you know, for better or for worse, they knew another home before, you know, coming to you, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they don't inherently understand they're safe. They don't inherently understand that just because you came and paid some money and led them away from the, the kennel run at the shelter that you are now their forever home and that things are going to be better. They don't understand any of that. Mm-hmm. We do. And we yeah. forget that they don't. Yes. And so sometimes it can take a while for these breeds to become comfortable in their new homes. And you have to be willing to say, okay, I'm going to give my dog some space. As long as my dog isn't totally, you know, dangerous uh, to, to people and he's not hurting himself, he's not self-harming. If he just wants to kind of sit in a corner and assess things, I'm going to give him space to do it. Mm. Because if if you let them figure it out, they will figure it out, yes. and they will bond to you as tightly as if you were their original owners. But it sometimes takes time with these breeds. Mm. Um, whereas some of the other breeds are usually not always, but usually uh, more adaptable. You know, they'll love whoever happens to be holding a food bowl at the moment. I mean, my curly coated retrievers. Whoever they loved at the moment was the one most sitting closest <laughs> to the treat jar or, yes. you know, the food bowl. But, you know, it, it's something, again, where that owner preparation, particularly with rescues, you need to understand that possibility and, and how are you going to deal with it
0: before you go out and fall in love with the dog and bring it home. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I I, th- I think that's true. You know, whatever the age of the dog you're getting, whatever the breed, whether you're buying, you know, a puppy or a you're rescuing a dog, y- you really need to get to grips beforehand with what is the likelihood, you know, from from the breeding, what's the likelihood of what this dog is going to be like mentally, and and that's really really important. Absolutely, absolutely, right. Can, Dawn, can you? I, I'll leave you to t- to say the full title of the book because it's a long title. Tell us the full title of the book, please.
2: <laughs> the full page title <laughs> of the book. It's empowerment training for your power dog. Unleash the positive potential in bully mastiffs, pit bulls, and other strong
0: dogs. Great, thank you. <laughs> I knew you'd do it better than <laughs> I, I, I would. You just cut half the cover. <laughs> You can only fit a picture of a two hour on with that. <laughs> Thank you so much for that though. That was fascinating as ever. That was brilliant. We'll put the links onto the, the other books and the interviews you've done with us for those for those books. Thank you very much. Um where can people find out more about you online?
2: Uh at our website at www.bonifieddogacademy.com. dot com. There is a bio page there. And I am right there on the top with my power dog when she was a puppy, with Ember the Dalmatian. Yeah. Um, but we have more information there, and there's also um, links if people are interested in purchasing the book. They can do it through our website or also through my publisher, Dogwise.com,
0: and uh, Amazon.com also carries both the book and the ebook. Smashing! That's great. I'm and I'm sure people will benefit greatly from you know reading the the book they'll benefit greatly from the advice today but even more so from the book because obviously there's more in the book than we've had time to uh, talk about today well the best of luck with the book and whatever you're doing next as well and we'll catch up with you soon dawn well thank you so much for chatting with me huge thanks to dawn who was extremely busy at the time of recording and made the time to talk to me We have all the links she mentioned on the Dogcast Radio site, dogcastradio.com, where you can find out more about Dawn Antoniak-Mitchell, her other books, and hear her other interviews with us. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com.
1: And now it's time for the Dogcast Radio News.
0: We start with new research from Michigan State University, which shows that dogs and their owners are likely to be similar in personality. So, for example, a person who is agreeable is twice as likely as someone less agreeable to have a dog who is active, excitable, but not aggressive.
1: But hang on, Buddy got on with everyone.
0: Yes.
1: Whereas you, well, don't.
0: Hmm. And mischief isn't an annoying, argumentative aggravating, antagonising... Well, you're
1: kind of making my point for me now. Aren't you talking to me? Well, one of us has to talk to the listeners. OK, I'll do it. The study evaluated 1,681 dogs and their owners in terms of their personalities using a standardised questionnaire. Interestingly, conscientious owners rated their dogs as more responsive to training and neurotic owners rated their dogs as more fearful.
0: Lead author, William J. Chopik... A social psychologist at the university acknowledges that relying on owners' observations of their own pet may be innately flawed, but points out that in similar studies, other people, such as friends, strangers, dog walkers and so on, credited people and their dogs with similar personality traits.
1: So, why do these similarities exist? William Chopik attributes it to a mix of nature and nurture, in that we choose a dog which we think will fit in with us and in our lives. But then our own behaviour and how we treat and train them shapes the dog. The personality of a pet dog is one thing, but what about the personality of a working dog? When the
0: US Customs and Border Patrol recently set out to source new recruits to join them as detector canines, they drew up a list of requirements. They were on the lookout for dogs who were young, healthy, good-looking, of standard heights and weights for their breed, with nice teeth and fur, and, of course, gifted in the nose department.
1: But that wasn't where the list ended because the dogs had to be happy to have people around them displaying neither fear nor aggression and should not react overly to unexpected events such as an umbrella being opened just in front of them. The dog should display an interest in new objects they are confronted with and should try to locate and play with these objects. When an
0: object the dog has played with is then hidden under something heavy like a cement block or tyre, the dog should persevere in their efforts to once more obtain the object. They should be happy to have people around them while they are working, not showing aggression or being overly distracted or showing fear.
1: As if all that wasn't enough, furthermore, the dogs should not be put off by unsure footing, tightly enclosed spaces, moving vehicles, loud noises, other live animals and their odours, and startling situations. Plus, they must have the drive and energy to sustain them through prolonged searches.
0: Crikey! Time wasters need not apply! from dogs gaining a job through their abilities to one who got theirs through looks alone. Twelve-year-old pug Sugar has become a model, though it's not really a desirable job, as she is the 2019 poster girl for the PDSA's Pet Fit Club. This year marks the 14th anniversary of the national competition and has helped 137 flabby animals lose the equivalent in weight of 1,190 cans of dog food.
1: Although sweet by nature, Sugar weighs double her ideal size, tipping the scales at 26 pounds, that's 11.9 kilograms, the same as a two-year-old child. Sugar, who put on weight while living with an owner whose disabilities limited their opportunities to provide Sugar with sufficient exercise, has been adopted by Steve Jones from Caffilli, South Wales, and has already started to lose weight. When Hannah Westmoreland's assistance dog, Journey, was fatally shot in their garden, she and her family were thrown into despair. Horrible. Hannah's
0: friends, family and neighbours had worked together in 2015 to raise the $10,000 needed to get her Journey, who alerted Hannah to the blood sugar highs and lows caused by her diabetes. You can imagine the peace of mind that golden retriever Journey provided. So it was devastating to lose not only a loved family member but one on whom Hannah relied to such an extent.
1: But when former Dallas Cowboy tight end Jay Novacek and his wife Amy heard of Hannah's plight, they stepped up to the plate. That's baseball.
0: Jay was a footballer.
1: Whatever. The important thing is that Amy herself is supported by an assistance dog after a very serious car crash, so the couple knew what an awful blow it was to Hannah to have lost her dog. They provided Hannah with a new service dog, whom she called Joey.
0: And not only is the family getting the dog for free, but they're also getting his training for free as well, courtesy of All Purpose Canines, Inc. Another heartwarming story now, and, funnily enough, another dog called Joey. A New York police officer has officially adopted a dog he rescued in Brooklyn over Christmas.
1: When Officer Michael Pascali saw a dog chained to a fence in a park, shivering and soaking wet, stuck in the freezing rain, he rescued the dog and as soon as the pair looked into each other's eyes, a beautiful friendship began, and the two are now inseparable, with Joey even riding in Michael's squad car. And speaking of beautiful friendships between dogs and police officers, a partnership we featured in episode 193 of Dog Radio was honoured at Crufts, receiving their Friends for Life award.
0: The award is decided by public vote, and the fact that police dog Finn protected his human partner, PC Dave Wardell, when he was attacked by a knife-wielding criminal attracted more votes than any of the other nominees. Unfortunately, Finn almost died from the attack, and Dave spent months nursing him back to health, and amazingly, back to work as well.
1: A campaign was mounted to create Finn's law to make attacks on police dogs and other service animals a criminal act, and it's in its final stages in the House of Lords. Congratulations to Dave and Finn, who is now enjoying a well-earned retirement. That's it for this time on the Dogcast Radio News. And in fact,
0: that's it for this episode. But there'll be another podcast out soon with all our interviews from this year's Crufts. So until next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident DogCastRadio. That's all one word, DogCastRadio. By email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way, we can include them directly in our program. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny.
1: What has four legs and goes foo-foo or crab-crab? A dog walking backwards.